Welcome to Language Made Difficult, a debonair part of the Specgram podcast. I'm Trey Jones, and this Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium is coming to you from our virtual conference center, hosted via satellite uplink from Balanza, Paraguay. Joining me today are the rest of the Ling Nerds, Keith Slater. I think I'm glad to be here. Bill Spruill. Hey. And Sherry Wells-Jensen. Hi there. And also joining us again on the program is Devin Steiner, this time after only a week away. Welcome back, Devin. Thanks for visiting with us again. Sure. Happy, I think, to be back. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. I've got three language-related items. Two are true, and one is false. You guys have to figure out which is which, and then we will discuss. We don't really have a theme this time. These are the leftovers, so there's no unifying theme, but that's okay because the theme doesn't ever help anyway. So, item number one. <laughs> the Western concept of the Eskimo kiss, which is rubbing noses, is based on the Inuit greeting called a kunik, which involves touching the nose to the face of a loved one and smelling them. I will tell you, <laughs> that part is actually true. So, no questions about that bit. <laughs> a possibly related slang word has arisen in Inuktitut, which is kinak, which can humorously refer to either nose or hindquarters, and it's based on the manner in which dogs give one another a kunik. Item number two. Among the Akan people of Ghana and the Ivory Coast, the distance between languages is measured in days, as in how many days it takes to learn the language. And that number can be as low as one. Item number three. Italian is the only language to be among the top 10 most widely spoken languages on four different continents. All right, who wants to go first? I'll make a go at it. Uh, number one sounds reasonable to me, if only because of the kind of phonetic symbolism there. If you think about kunik, you end up with less space than you start with. In other words, you start with the ooh, you're, you've got a fair amount of space in your mouth. The E, it's reduced, so this kind of reduction of space makes sense there. Kinak, on the other hand, you're backing off, right? <laughs> it, it, it's, <laughs> you, you figure out you're too close for whatever that is, and you get away from it. So I think that's kind of phonetic symbolism, and that makes sense. Number three also sounds believable to me, not only because of some Italian colonialism in Africa, but also because I know there's a lot of Italian speakers in South America, and that means you only need to find one more continent. Number two, I find difficult to believe simply because those are West African languages, and it takes at least 400 years to learn a West African <laughs> language, because I've tried. <laughs> they have tones. And even people who are able to master the arcane permutations necessary to even begin to speak a West African language can't learn another one in one day. <laughs> okay. Keith or Sherry, who wants to go next? Well, I'll go. I was going to wait to make Keith go next and then pick the one he doesn't, just so we have the basis covered. But I think I'm just going to go <laughs> boldly. I'm going to go boldly. Well, that was after my strategy, too. <laughs> okay, so let's go backwards here. I'm going to start with the Italian one. And I am prepared to defend this as true, even if you say it isn't, because I can imagine a time when there are some kind of group of Italian scientists in Antarctica, which, you know, would raise <laughs> Italian to at least fourth place. And then I can, you know, then I just have to come up with three more and that's not, that's not so hard. So I'm, I think three is true. Okay. I'm going to say number two is true also because although it takes 400 years to learn your first West African language, I assume then that maybe they're just being a little bit sarcastic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a dialect. It's a dialect of the, the village next door. 
And all you have to do is substitute some kind of velar stuff or one of the clicks or something, and then you're good to go. I think that one might just be true. Oh, that's weird. Wait, quiet. Don't interrupt my thought process with that. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, sorry. No hands. (laughs) I I didn't write down the word West. That's right. I'm sticking to it. I have a wool model from last week. I'm sticking to what I said. (laughs) (laughs) And that worked out so well for me. (laughs) It did. It did. Because you felt good all week, didn't you? You did. Absolutely. (laughs) You felt good. I didn't write down all of the first one, and so it can't possibly be true. Because I take good notes, so it can't possibly be true. Because I didn't, I didn't really write it down. I think that's just Trey being desperate and kind of goofy. So it's number one. <laughs> well, so you think number one? So Cher, you yeah. picked one, and Bill picked two. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, then that leaves it for me to pick three. So I will do so. So number <laughs> one, whether it's true or not. It's a great joke for preteens, and I have two of them at home, and so I need this to be true. Even if it's not true, I'm going to tell it to my kids when I get home, so I'll call that one true. Similarly, the one about how many days it takes to learn a language is a great joke for that next linguistics department party mixer kind of thing where you're standing around uncomfortably trying to think of something to talk about with some Mm. professor or fellow grad student. And you need something to break the ice. And I think even though I think Trey is bluffing on this one, I'm going to say it's it's also true. The third one, I personally have toured three continents and I haven't met enough of these supposed Italian speakers to put them (laughs) in the top four. It's not the top four. It's the top 10. Top 10. Uh, on four continents. Oh, Sherry said four. Yes, oh, but she 10. was wrong. Still, I don't, I don't believe it. I, don't, okay. I, I was wrong. I don't I was wrong. any Italian city, So no. I don't take good notes I, at all. I was totally wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I'm going with your notes, and three is wrong. <laughs> so there. Okay. Uh, let's see, Devin, that gives you uh, a good chance of agreeing with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who do I want to agree with this week? All right. So number one, I'm going to believe, right? Because anytime you can mix up nose and hindquarters, that's hilarious. That's obviously going to catch on. <laughs> so I'm going to say that one's true. Second one, I don't quite know. Third one, though, I'm going to completely embarrass myself and stake my reputation as a French professor on the line and say that that one has to be false because I know for a fact that French is the second most common second language in the world. And there were Francophone colonies on six continents, right? North America, South America, obviously Europe, Africa, Asia, and uh, uh, what is it? Oceania? Is that that other one with Australia? Mm -hmm. And Antarctica, right? And there's a little base down there. So I'm going to say three is false. French is everywhere. I'm going to go with that. Can't be Italian. So I'm going to give you a little bit of professional advice. (laughs) And I'm wrong again this week. All right. (laughs) We don't want any more of that math nonsense you're all spouting. (laughs) Last chance. (laughs) Okay, so clearly I'm wrong. (laughs) I wasn't feeling too good about number two, so I'm going to say that one's a lie, and I'm going to be done. I don't even have a reason. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) He likes it, though. That's just going to be the lie. Let's go with that. Because Bill's usually right, so go with him. I like the application of classic... French teaching philosophy, though, there, though. <laughs> French is very common, so other languages don't exist. <laughs> I mean, that's how I learned French. <laughs> if we don't keep that line going, everyone will go learn Spanish. Or Italian. So, or Italian. Yeah. Right. Or Italian. All right, Trey. Hit us with the bad I, news. All right. I can't I still even lose. remember what I said at this point. I have no memory. <laughs> I'm sure it was right, though. 
Okay, so we'll do them in order again this time, since there's no reason to pick any particular order over any other. <laughs> well, because everyone was chosen by someone, so. Uh-huh, yeah. Go ahead, disappoint me first. I'm tough. I can take Okay, it. so the one about the, the Eskimo kiss, that is false. That's the one I made up. Oh. No way. Man. No. Yep. Hey, I even changed I my I answer and I was still wrong. <laughs> can't tell my kids this? You can tell them, but it isn't true. I will remain convinced <laughs> that my theory about vowel symbolism is correct, though. It just applies to the subconscious motivations for you making that up. I'm willing to accept <laughs> that, yes. That is, that is perfectly fine. It's just a performance error. It's not my fault that no languages actually realized that feature. Okay. So for the record, Kinok is a real word and it means face. Face. Yep. Wow. So getting back to the languages in West Africa, they actually do measure the distance between languages in how long it takes to learn the language. And they really do say they can learn a language in a day. And it probably is, like someone said, just a dialect variant. Or it could be bragging and not actually true, but it is what they say. All right. And that brings us to Italian, which is, in fact, the only top 10 language on four different continents. And the numbers are actually surprisingly small. So it's 8% in Europe, which you would expect. It's 0.4% in North America, 0.5% in South America, and 1.2% in Oceania. And just for reference, English, French, German, Spanish, and Arabic make the top 10 on three different continents each. You didn't include my ship of Italian cooks and scientists down in Antarctica. Nope. So it could be five. There's no data on Antarctica. I think that's a pretty artificial situation and probably fluctuates a lot. Well, the fact is it's not a continent. Antarctica? They, I mean, why Why would you call that a continent? It's just a lot of, you know, it's, it, it just hangs around there and gets it's, ice on it. That's It's not a in the song. It's in the song that we all learned in third grade, which I don't remember how it goes anymore. But besides, it's Titanic and it's all rock and there's ocean around it, which is kind of one of the definitions of continent. Well, Britain is like that. Well, and it's big. But it's insufficiently gigantic. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say that about everything for the rest of the day. It's insufficiently gigantic. (laughs) The heck with that other thing I was going to try to say all day long. I'm going to say this thing all day long. (laughs) Yeah, well, okay. Hey, wait, does that mean I was right? (laughs) In fact, it does, yes. Oh, she's in first place. She was already in first place. She remains in first place. I love this game. (laughs) I love this game. But the good news is I'm getting closer. So Sherry's in first place with 58%. I've got 57%. Keith and Bill have 43%. And Devin has pushed the guest down a little bit farther to a comfortable 30%. Very relaxed. No pressure. Happy to help. Happy to help. (laughs) I would like to point out that Bill and I are doing better than chance. The problem with that is that the guests were doing as good as chance until this time. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that's because the guests obstinately refused to take the hints given to them. I changed my answer. I took that hint. I just picked it <laughs> What I was trying to hint was that both of the things you had said were, in fact, incorrect. <laughs> Before you got around to the Everything. third one. Everything I had said was wrong. Trey, you're just not a good hinter. Your hints are insufficiently gigantic. <laughs> <laughs> well... At least, at least Devin's a good sport and didn't get splenetic on me. Oh, no. No, I've gotten very splenetic, and I'm never doing this again. <laughs> I think we should invite her back next time. I don't know. Two and a half years. Just to drive that down even further. 
How, how much maybe, worse maybe, could I do? Maybe all of the facts could be about French next time. <laughs> and I'd still get something wrong. I think if I've proven anything in the last two weeks. Well, you know, you could send me some suggested items. Oh, oh that's fair. <laughs> I could do that. I'll turn it all into information structure in old French. It'll be great. Wait, wait, there's an old French? Yes, oh. it's what we call bad Latin. <laughs> I had to say that I'm sponsored by the Association of Classicists. What <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that who pays your salary? I would think at the time that they would consider it bad Latin, but now we recognize it as the language that led to the wonderful French language, which we were talking about how wonderful it is earlier. The most perfect and beautiful language on earth, obviously. Old French. I'm pretty sure that we're going to find out later, after you've left us, that that's Arabic. That's foreshadowing a little bit. I, I just think just don't tell the French. <laughs> I know Devin has to go, so thanks for hanging out with us again. Yeah. <laughs> Devin, it'll be less than two and a half years before we call you again. Really. I, I may not pick up the phone this time. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with some language news after a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is not brought to you by Rattenfängerstadt Hameln. To be frank, the people of Rattenfängerstadt Hameln have got better things to do than to support a linguistics journal. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the makers of Language Made Difficult. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. We're now going to turn our splenetic attention to a paper entitled The Arabic Origins of the Verb To Be in English, German, and French, A Lexical Root Theory Approach by Zayden Ali Jassim of Qasim University. In this paper, Jassim sets out his lexical root theory, which more or less comes down to this. Vowels don't matter, consonants are mere suggestions at best, and meaning is infinitely pliable when you're playing the game of semantic telephone. Now, I used to think that Joseph Greenberg's acolyte, Merritt Rulin, had completely tossed out every last vestige of the neogrammarian notion of regular sound changes. But it seems that Jossum has found considerably more to disregard. He seems to have overgeneralized every notion of recorded or hypothesized sound change all the way to free variation. And he regularly encourages sounds to change along any dimension they please. And in his introduction, he notes that sound changes include assimilation, dissimilation, deletion, merger, insertion, split, syllable loss, resyllabification, consonant cluster reduction, or creation, and so on. And that includes root reversal, which is one of my favorites. And he freely mixes and matches them at will with no order and without any motivation other than his obeisance to lexical root theory, the goal of which, as far as I can tell, is to place Arabic on a pedestal as the original language. Keith, what do you think? Overgeneralized, free variation, tossed out. No, Trey, look, you may not like the results, but you can't argue with this guy's success. I mean, the <laughs> International Journal of Applied Linguistics and English Literature printed this article, and that shows that there's some scholarly power behind it. I mean, come on. And I want to point out, Trey, that this is at least the fourth in a series. He previously has published articles that do the same thing with numerals, with religious terms, and with determiners. That is convincing stuff. It's pretty comprehensive, and I think you've got to be on to something. Oh, you know what? He's written more than two dozen of these things. <laughs> two dozen? Oh, He's done pronouns, derivational morphemes, negative particles, prepositions and conjunctions, and then words, just like random list of words related to water, air, fire, celestial bodies, animals, body parts, speech, writing, time, family, cutting. Breaking, movement, action, perception, sensation, cognition, mental states, and love and sex, and whining and dining. And it was horrifying. So look, he's clearly got <laughs> tenure, so this is adding up to something. 
Do you think he has tenure or he's trying really hard to get it? No, no, no. He's entertaining his students. I mean, this is clearly the sort of stuff that I do. I say, you've got 10 steps. Here's a phonetic transcription of the word cow. You take any sound change rule you can come up with. You've got 10 steps. Make it into moon. Go. And that's what he's doing. He's having a blast. (laughs) I have to admit that his sound change principle seems to be anything can become anything. (laughs) Yeah, see, that's the problem. I was thinking about this. His derivations are insufficiently convincing to even appear in Specgram as a joke. I think they're insufficient. Oh, that's harsh. The, the Boosterfeden Plummerfeld hypothesis, which shows how the word Boosterfeden could become Plummerfeld, is significantly more convincing than any of his <laughs> derivations. I mean, I was defending him, but frankly, I wish we had gotten this article before the International Journal of Applied Linguistics and English Literature did, because I would have been happy to print this. It's <laughs> yeah, Trey, you're just mad because you got scooped. Ah, <laughs> oh, that must be <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. Ah. <sighs> And you got to respect a journal that waits a full 24 hours after receipt of an article before publishing it. I mean, <laughs> there was some 24. thought. Oh, sure enough. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. It was received on 11-10-2012. Wait a minute. 11-10-2012 and published on 25-11-2012. That's, that's a month. Oh, well, didn't I see an, a 11-10 and then an 11-11? Oh, it was accepted 11-11. You're right. It was accepted one day later. Well, the journal itself is listed on a list of potential, possible, or probable predatory scholarly open access journals. <laughs> so, now that doesn't automatically mean that it's a fake journal, but they never put journals like language on it or even linguistic inquiry. Or even speculative grammarian. Or even speculative grammarian. We're honest about our status. We don't charge. We don't charge. <laughs> we publish for free. <laughs> so. I'm sorry. I'm still back with the noun phrase predatory open access journal. I just. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, What's that? There has been an explosion of open access journals because it doesn't cost much money at all to have an open access journal on the internet. Right. So you can. You know, I couldn't do it, but Trey could just set up a new journal in probably 20 minutes and it would look like a journal. Wow. Son of, of Specgram, the predatory open Journal of Predatory Linguistics. There we go. International Journal of Predatory Linguistics. But I think this is the Journal of Predatory Historical Linguistics, right? I mean, let's kind of limit ourselves here. Well, because you want several, don't you? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. That is kind of the point. Once you set up a website for one, you could just clone it over and over again for different fields and different subfields and so on. And you got to go with the cool acronym, right? See, if the Predatory Applied Linguistics, that's your PAL journal. Speculative historical linguist. The fact that it's on that, I, I don't know. We can't automatically assume that everything in the journal is bad, but looking at the paper itself, I'll, it's, it is an interesting argument. <laughs> He's clearly you know, proud of his work. He put his phone number on there. <laughs> we could have called him and had a guest. 
I considered whether I would assign this paper in at the end of a historical linguistics class. No, know, don't do it. Oh, my God. Don't do please, it. Please don't do it. Please because... find all the errors, right? Or summarize the methodological errors. So rejection of vowels in historical comparison. I like that one, but it's not right. Reliance on the sound change principle. Anything can become anything. The <laughs> total omission of the principle of regular sound change. The lack of plausibility as a factor of limiting semantic change. Total unfamiliarity with all historical linguistic literature. <laughs> 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 What else could we criticize? Pretty much everything. I didn't think it was worth reading all 12 pages <laughs> to get there. I thought of that, too, for a second. I thought this would be really good for my students to read. And I thought, what if they like it? <laughs> then you could throw them out. Fail them. I was going to say, you know what? I don't know how many there would be, but those are the ones you need to get out of the linguistics program right away. <laughs> it's a shibboleth. Yeah. Did you notice there was a news item in the past few days about articles being submitted to a number of online journals that were actually created by a computational linguistics program? That comes up every once in a while, yeah. Well, the group that was generating the papers and submitting them announced which ones a bunch of them were that had not been detected yet. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> okay. Oh, man. So now, unlike the historical linguistics paper, They were in fields that were math-heavy because I think they're relying on people's tendency, unless you're a specialist in the area, you take a glance at the page, and the minute they start mentioning Dirichlets and conjugate priors and then hit you with some gigantic vectorized something or another, you say, oh, huh, let's look at the conclusion. Well, I don't understand that either, but it's probably all very special. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and go off and do something else with it. Whereas this article, anybody who looked at it would probably be interested in historical linguistics or they wouldn't be looking at it. And the minute they look at it, it's also special, but in a different way. Though, so, you know, I had a crazy idea while you were talking there that if this article had been written by a computer program, then I would be extremely impressed. Well, that's the point. That's a point. And, you know, I have seen some Nostratusist arguments about like the number for three and that sort of thing. So he's, I think that, uh, how to put it politely, um, historical linguistics gives you a kind of time-based lens. And there's a focal point. And once it's beyond the focal point, you can't really say anything about it, right? Right. Because there's not enough demonstrable information left in the signal. Right. For you to do anything with. So when you have people pointing out parallels between Thaloth and three and that sort of thing, it's, well, yeah, that could be possible. It looks suggestive, but it can also be totally random chance. And the chance that it's totally random chance is way too high. So it's beyond the realms of science there, you know. Right. But at least in that case... That argument doesn't have some of the flaws that Keith was going through earlier. Yeah, that, that one has some of the same sounds in it, at least. <laughs> in, in some of the same order, even. And, and the meaning is the same, too, because it means three. And um, But one of the things that we've glossed over here in our rush to judgment, as it were, but no, one of the things we've glossed over here in discussing this article is the idea here that he's not just saying that you know the English, French, and German words for to be are related to Arabic. They are derived from Arabic. I know. Yeah, I know. it's beautiful, isn't it? And Arabic is the original and unchanging language, 
right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's throwing out a whole nother level of principles of historical linguistics, right? That somehow Arabic doesn't change and it's perfect and so on and so forth. And that's one of the things I've learned from personal experience is you never get into a debate with a native speaker of Arabic or Chinese about how beautiful, logical, or perfect their language is. Well, you know that article we had about the Iliad with the plus or uh-huh. minus 700 years? It was actually plus or minus 400, but we kept well, saying 700. Well, I mean... <laughs> yeah, like it matters, but go on. If you just imagine a procedure that has like plus or minus 10,000 years on it. <laughs> yeah, well, one thing I like about uh, English is that uh, it doesn't lend itself to those kinds of arguments about it being overly beautiful, logical, or perfect. <laughs> because it clearly is not, though it does have a lot of words in it. Oh, Trey, Trey, Trey. <laughs> Spoken like a man who doesn't work in an English department. <laughs> yeah, and Bill wrote trust, a book about English once. You, I am sure that you can find at least one person who, you know, number one, it, it may not be modern English. It had the and thou in it because, you know, Moses used those pronouns. <laughs> And right. it was good enough for Moses. Right, exactly. And, and it's written so, in red. It's good enough for me. Right. And there's that. And then there's, you can always find someone who can interpret the world in such a way that, well, obviously people were speaking my favorite language 10,000 years ago, but the island they were speaking it on sank. Or, <laughs> you know, it's it's like conspiracy theory thinking once they commit to it they you know they're going to find a way to ignore counter evidence you know what i don't think it's like a conspiracy theory i think it is a conspiracy <laughs> theory i mean i think it really is the exact same mindset but they don't believe in evil language is trying to exert political power over right 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 but i mean i think that conspiracy theory mindset that you're referring to is broader than just applying to conspiracy theories and agreeing it's basically the exact same mindset for those kinds of things I read the article and just started getting sad. Yeah, I fear that reading it has made me dumber. <laughs> I'm, I'm really, I'm worried. What I kept thinking is, is he laughing? How hard is he laughing right now? I mean, that's my Author? hope. Yeah, my hope is that he's going. <laughs> They're taking it seriously. And he's Googling he around. just laughing all the way to the tenure. What is it? The They're taking seriously that we can't believe he's serious about it. Yeah. If it's a send-up, it's really cool. <laughs> Those suckers at Specgram, they didn't respond to my email because I never got it. I'll show them. <laughs> Since we rejected his article. But the thing is, we would have accepted this article. <laughs> <laughs> he let us in by ignoring vowels, just like anyone who writes Arabic would. I'm almost willing to let that one slide. You know, you could send him a little friendly note and invite him to submit to your peer-reviewed journal. <laughs> okay, so we're a little off topic, but I actually have a <laughs> I have a, a general filter I try to apply. I try not to um, accept these kinds of papers when people seem to believe what they're writing. <laughs> That's a good idea. Yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by Son of Specgram, the international predatory journal of linguistics. We're dedicated to taking your money and increasing the imaginary component of your complex impact factor. Son of Specgram, we're here for when your paper isn't good enough for language or funny enough for speculative grammarian, but you've got to publish it somewhere. Son of Specgram, publish and prosper. 
Son of Spectrum and published in Prosper are trademarks of the International Predatory Journal of Linguistics Initiative. Son of Spectrum is not affiliated with nor endorsed by Spectrum Marion or language, and any onomastic similarities are entirely coincidental. No brain confusion is intended nor should any be inferred unless it makes it easier to expense the publication fee, which is substantial. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Well, it's time again, grad students, for some sample answers to comprehensive exam questions because we know you're just starting to get your last minute studying in. Usually we try to give you questions that we are pretty sure will be popular with examination committees during this season of comprehensive exams. But this time around, our espionage network failed us. We don't have the inside scoop for any actual linguistics departments. But, you know, come to think of it, who cares what the questions are? All you're interested in is the answers, right? That's what you have to give. So listen up because we're pretty sure these answers are going to work. So the first question today is from computational linguistics, which I don't think we've done before. And here's the question. Who do you suppose came up with the name for the Turing test? And why is this test important in computational linguistics? Uh, who'd like to give a sample? Oh, oh, Mr. Slater, Mr. Slater, pick me, pick me. <laughs> yes, you there in the red hat. <laughs> As any good sociolinguist knows, you can't always trace the origin of a term to a particular time, place, or person, right? But it's clear that, that the Turing test was named after Alan Turing, by people who admired the work that Turing was doing, particularly in terms of trying to come up with a practical definition of machine intelligence. So that's the first part. The second part, why is this test important in computational linguistics? And it's particularly important nowadays in computational linguistics, but the reason is not entirely obvious to those outside the field. From the point of view of socio-metalinguistics, which is not to be confused with meta-sociolinguistics, which is completely different and irrelevant here, the idea of the Turing test is used by syntacticians and other theorists to discount the practical, effective, and often highly profitable but non-tenure-inducing work of computational linguists. <laughs> so, while ignoring the deeper philosophical questions of the inherent difference in machine and human intelligences. So, syntacticians taunt with things like, sure, tech companies use computational linguistics to make billions and billions of dollars, but have you made any progress on the Turing test? No, I thought not. So, the man is holding us down. So, Trey, it sounds like you studied ahead and, and memorized your answer for this question. <laughs> <laughs> Well, does anybody else have an answer, another possible answer in another possible world? <laughs> well, I, I do, especially since he's going to end with the man is holding us down. I just like to point out how crashingly wrong that answer was really with apologies. <laughs> okay, so the two ring test, it's obviously a <laughs> Disney princess reference because it has to do with jewelry. This is clearly meant to throw you off, but it's not completely just about jewelry. It and it's important because you can do anything if you get the right wardrobe and the right animator, and you can even do computational linguistics if you get that set up right. With the right <laughs> animator, you can do this. Besides, it's really clear that only bots could write most of that Disney dialogue, except for Frozen, which was a really great movie. <laughs> this from the woman with two daughters. Yeah, it says right in there, you're not supposed to marry a guy you just meet the first day. So, said <laughs> it, said okay, it so twice. That was a two -ring test. Yes. Yeah, the two ring test. Well, I have an answer for why it's important in computational linguistics, but it's kind of the inverse of what Trey said. And since Trey is a computational linguist, I think that means his answer is wrong. Oh, yeah. so, he's not qualified. No, because he's too close to it, right? Because I can't do the meta sociolinguistics of it, right? No, no, it's... Trey, Trey um, is becoming splenetic, but uh, go ahead, Bill. <laughs> the whole idea behind a Turing test is can this, whatever it is convince you it's human, right? If you communicate with it for a while, do you end up thinking it's human? The edge of that people don't normally think about is that if you say, okay, can you tell if you're talking to a human that's really bad at communicating, all right? Like, 
Yeah, I feel like since you set this up to where I thought the person on the other end has aphasia or something, I do feel like I've been talking to a person. So the idea there is passing the Turing test is relative. It depends on what you think about the person you're communicating with, which gets at the heart of computational linguistics. What's the goal you're trying to get to, right? Mm -hmm. Hmm. Your application has to take the goal into account. So maybe we could blend some of your answer with some of Sherry's answer, and we could have a one-ring test with a very low threshold, a two-ring test with a higher threshold, and then the Holy Grail would be the three-ring test. The three-ring circus. circus. (laughs) Okay, well, I want to give one other possible answer, because I think all of you have completely missed the point of the Turing test. The Turing test is a test of uh, how many days you can survive in that package tour that's included at the end of an overseas linguistics conference. You know, it's tacked on optional days of touring to see the sites in the local area. And uh, how many days can you last through that? It's important because if you don't participate in all three days of the package tour, the organizers of the conference aren't going to come when you host the conference next year. So you have to participate in the whole thing or else nobody will be there next time around when you host the conference. Hmm. I thought you were going to say that it was important for computational linguistics in particular because all the computational linguists are really computer scientists at heart. And so they're all pasty and pale and have never been out in the sun and they can't (laughs) do any touring. (laughs) They catch on fire. That could be it. Okay, well, maybe we better move on to the next question. So the next question comes from sociolinguistics. And here it is. Many pidgin languages have similar grammatical and morphological structures and discourse structures. And it has been claimed that these structures represent the form of language that is biologically hardwired into the human brain. Now, if you disagreed with this hypothesis, how, whether you do or not, doesn't matter. But if you did disagree with this hypothesis, how would you attempt to disprove who, uh, who will start us off? Well, I'll start, I guess. Clearly, the the question is trying to get you to do cruel things with electrodes to pigeons. And (laughs) that is against the Disney princess code of conduct. So we can't go there, right? (laughs) So what you have to do in this case, if you're put in this situation, and this is a general strategy that I recommend on this kind of question. You need to cite something. It has to be something obscure. And you have to really stick to it in the rest of your answer, even if some splenetic old gnome opposes you and tries to talk you out of it. You have to really (laughs) get your reference, put it in the right format, you know, put the commas and the quotation marks where they go. And this is the one that you would use in this case. On the, it has to start with an on too, all of your best citations, right? On the biomorphology of verb phrases in Columba Livia, evidence from inherent cross-linguistic pigeonization of the Arabic copula by, of course, Robert P. Mueller et al., 1946. And that's what you do. And then it's a win, because who can argue with that? Uh, that guy who wrote the Arabic article we talked about. <laughs> well, I think the Arabic part is convincing. <laughs> it's, con- it's totally convincing. And if I think if you look in his references, you'll find that Robert P. Mueller right in there. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure of it. All right. Well, does anybody else have an alternate answer? I think you should start by stealing all the preverbal children of those who believe in universal grammar and strand them on various islands without adult supervision <laughs> and then send photographic proof of the children's whereabouts taped to a copy of the Lord of the Flies to the parents <laughs> and agree to the safe return of the children whose parents publish articles debunking, disproving, and generally discrediting universal grammar. Uh, but that's only if you're on the supervillain track at your university. 
Which you no, should be because of, that's good. Yeah, and then it won't be Disney, but Pixar will make a movie about it. <laughs> <laughs> if you're worried about this, right, all you have to do is cite Bickerton because he kind of wanted to do this more or less. He did. More or less. Yeah. Well, so I have sort of a similar answer, and that is I think the best way to attack this particular hypothesis is to argue that there are no true pigeon languages. The concept of pigeons was undoubtedly dreamed up by some prescriptivist or possibly even lexicalist who was too lazy to study actual grammar. And so they didn't notice that pigeon languages actually had grammar or that there were as many differences as there really are. So any claims that are made about so-called pigeon languages are just nonsense because the construct is nonsense to begin with, and we can just safely ignore it. I had a slightly different approach, but I think it would result in the same kind of effect. <laughs> I would start by point of... Uh, Collecting together some observations about structures of pigeons. So the claim is they're usually SVO, right? They're subject, verb, object. They frequently use particles in a preposition-like way. Again, you can call anything a particle, but and people who work on pigeons do. And, <laughs> uh, you know, they frequently put modifiers before nouns and that kind of thing. So I would line those up, and then I would point out it looks a lot like English. That's what I was just thinking. And then if it were an oral exam, after I pointed that out, I would sit back and sort of raise an eyebrow and just look meaningfully at everybody. (laughs) Because they should fill in various negative implications to that without me having to trap myself by actually saying any of them in a way that other people might disagree with. How long did you sit with your eyebrow raised? Well, you're supposed to be emanating this sort of affect like, I've obviously answered this, so that people who disagree with you are a little afraid to act like maybe you haven't, because then they're the only person who can't figure out what the problem is. You know, I'm hoping, well, that person over there is thinking, okay, the fact that it happens to be like English means that They're just saying, well, that's obviously biologically hardwired. So it's like the people who have to jump through 470 hoops to get rid of VSO languages because, heaven forbid, the verb and the object actually not be somehow next to each other, right? (laughs) And then you've got somebody else sitting over there going, oh, yeah, that's kind of hegemonic, isn't it? I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All of these pigeons start, yeah, we've got some recorded pigeons from non-colonial contexts, but most of them are from colonial contexts. Those were Indo-European languages, most of, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there's kind of that going on. So there's various answers there. But see, if you say the problem is it's like English and it's because the analyst is reading English structure into everything, then you annoy the person that's got the colonialist answer, potentially. <laughs> and if you give the colonialist answer, you annoy the other person. And if you say either of those, you annoy the cognitivist who is sitting there going, yeah, I think what it represents is the best compromise solution between a number of competing principles that they may be hardwired, but they're not language hardwired. They're perceptual system hardwired or something. So if you can indicate there's a problem with it, but avoid giving any specifics, you're home free. And to answer Keith's question about how long do you sit there with your arched eyebrow? Yes. The answer is as long as it takes, because there's always somebody (laughs) who cannot stand the silence. 
Yeah. And then they will just go and, on to and the we'll break in. Yep. It's a macro strategy. It works all the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, once again, Bill has given the post PhD level answer. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's like the post postgraduate answer. Anyway, post postdoc answer. Or something. Okay, well, let's move on to the next question. We have two more questions. The next one is from phonology. I worked hard to come up with a question for phonology because there's so little to discuss, but here it is. <laughs> discuss the concept of floating tones and what can they tell us about phonological models? And then as a follow up, what might they tell us about the linguists who create those models? You know, let me just go first and get it over with because I misread <laughs> this question and I thought it oh. said floating toes. And <laughs> the floating toes, which, as you may Google, you'd know is a 1950s ballet troupe, all of Russian phonologists. And so, really, <laughs> I don't really need to say any more about it, I don't think, because it's the floating toes. I think that pretty well handles it. Anybody yeah. else have an answer that was related to the actual question? <laughs> they were really good, the floating toes. <laughs> Could really kick. So I think floating tones are what you get when you have too much data and not enough theory. And <laughs> okay. phonological models that propose floating tones are data-driven and theoretically weak. And they posit the minimal phonological machinery necessary to explain the data without regard to the damage that such misuse of theory can have. And clearly a more theoretical mature formalism would posit an underlying phoneme perhaps a nice unpronounceable laryngeal, for example, which carries the tone until it is alighted in all contexts by a straightforward phonological rule. So I think in terms of the linguists who create these things, they are theoretically degenerate, obviously. And they're on the supervillain <laughs> track, right? In their universities. That could explain a lot, yeah. So that's to be the anti-theory supervillain track, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would say what they tell us is that even linguists can't get away from their spelling systems. Because if you say, all right, let's step back from the sequence of symbols we write down. When people produce speech, they're really doing a set of muscle motions, right? Mm. And different parts are moving at different times. And all a floating tone really is, is a particular kind of vocal gesture that's the realization of a morpheme. I mean, you can, you know, call it a morpheme, call it whatever you want to. There's some particular meaning. It's associated with the effect of this muscular motion. And calling it floating just means you engage in that muscular motion while you're also engaging in other motions that we think of as corresponding to phonemes or whatever. I want to call a technical foul. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Which one? I think because... Bill is talking about mouth motions, that he's veering too close to phonetics. And we're trying to talk about phonology, which abstracts away all the flapping hunks of mouth meat. Yeah, I don't, you're not allowed to refer to the mouth in phonology. That's not, that's <laughs> not part of the discipline. Okay, well, get away from the mouth and talk about motor activations. Okay, that works. And the cortex. No, brain. I don't and know. The cortex, yeah, yeah. The cortex. Yeah, no, I, it's, I forget it's like which gooey bit they're near, but it's the top middle bit there. <laughs> um, so whatever, they're there. But when people try to talk about distinctive features, they're supposed to be talking about moving things around. It's just when you move things around, you don't move binarily, so it kind of gets in the way of that. But the fact people had to call them floating tones is driven by the urge to think of sound slices as if they're separate instead of movement. I still think you've gone too far 
into anything biological. I think if you're going to do phenology, the only body part you're allowed to mention is the pointy finger on the side of the page that shows you <laughs> which one. I'm, I'm trying to pull Trey's trick, but in a different part of the theory. So instead, you know, it's like the phenologists quit, start talking about anatomy. They don't like that. <laughs> But phonologists don't do that. That's what phoneticians do. Yeah, and see if the phoneticians don't like what you're saying, it's like, well, that's the phonology part. And the minute you head towards phonetics, the phonologists start dozing off and don't pay attention to what you're saying. And the minute you head towards phonology, the phoneticians start completely ignoring you. So then you want to be a, what, an anatomical phonologist? Because you have to to blend your, your phonetic phonologist? Phonological phonetician? No, you can't have a phonetic phonologist. That's, you know, like matter and antimatter. <laughs> a phonophoneticist? <laughs> a phonetophon. No, you just can't do that. Anyway, there's a correct answer to this question. Let me give it to you. Um, so, floating tones were our abstract theoretical constructs, which were created only to rescue autosegmental phonology from the damage that was caused to it by actual data. And, you know, if we didn't have floating tones, we could not have a tier-based phonological model. But, oh, wait, we don't have a tier-based model anymore. That went away. So we don't need them anymore. And what this tells us about linguists is that autosegmental phonologists are out of work. <laughs> I loved those I tiers. Those were great. You yeah, could go to the tinker toys. And tinker toys are so fun. Nice. <laughs> but anyway, they're gone. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the way it is. Okay, well, there's one more question. And this one is a bit of a subjective question. So there is no right answer. But there will be some clearly wrong answers. No, there are many right answers. There are no wrong answers. Thank you. Yes. Oh, yes, uh, so, there will be. I think there will be many clearly wrong answers. There may not be no, <laughs> okay. no one right answer. All right. Well, here's the question. Name a journal article that you feel has been especially important in the history of linguistics. Explain its influence and also why you think it has stood the test of time. And I would like to go first. The journal article that I feel is especially important is the Hopper and Thompson one on transitivity, which I'm sure you've all memorized, published in 1980, probably. Mm -hmm. I think this article has stood the test of time because I personally have been able to figure out a way to cite it in every single article that I have ever published. (laughs) And therefore, it has high value for making me look well-informed. So I think that's the key to its staying power. Now, how about some of the rest of you? I would say Fillmore's The Case for Case. Because it, in particular, got people talking about issues in a way that I think led to generative grammar finally giving up and adopting thematic roles. And why is that a good thing? I was seeing how long it would take you to say something because I was doing the silence thing. (laughs) He raised his eyebrow. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Look. There was Chomsky's idea that you didn't need to talk about subjects and objects and so forth, let alone anything semantic-y, because all that really mattered was this is the NP directly dominated by S as opposed to the NP directly dominated by VP, right? Mm, yes. Was, and then, There's no meaning involved there. Right. <laughs> but there's that whole complex of things that surround... Well, but active versus passive has different implications for what you think the subject's doing. And there's, it's not just semantics. There's tons of syntactic effects to that. And it matters. And you had multiple people talking about this. I mean, you had Fillmore doing the case for case that was bringing up some of it. You had Halliday making arguments about it. But see, the case for case was published in the U.S. in the journal language. And it made a ton of sense. And so you get the case for case being published. 
And then later you're getting Chomsky saying, um, okay, here's this thing by Gruber from before the case for case was published. Let's talk about that a lot, shall we? And <laughs> they end up adopting, quote, thematic roles, unquote, that have to do with what we might call these semantic features. I mean, there's a lot of complexities. They split off theta roles from them and sort of every, you know, et cetera. It is important to note that Gruber was working before Fillmore and Halliday, from what I can tell from the date. So, you know, he was. But people were really talking about the case for case, I think. I mean, it was out there in language. It was raising all these issues. And I think the pressure it exerted might have caused the generative camp to think, oh, this other platform looks good. Let's add some features to our version so we can cope with this. Other choice being to jump to the other platform. Well, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, Microsoft grabbing things from Apple because they sell better, right? Right. And then they can turn around and pretend to have invented them by naming their program Windows. Like, (laughs) you know, we invented Windows. Look, it's in the name. (laughs) I think Bill makes a compelling case for the case for case. (laughs) Let's move on. (laughs) Sherry? I am going to stick with, though, on the biomorphology of verb phrases in Columba Livia. Evidence from inherent cross-linguistic... I keep saying this so someone will listen, right? Evidence from cross-linguistic pigeonization of the Arabic capula by Robert P. Mueller et al., 1946. Because, after all, it did get you out of your problem in the second question of the comprehensive exam. And nobody knows what it means. It can save you in a number of circumstances. And it can serve you as a frame. You pop out words like biomorphology if you happen to need, you know, syntax or proto-syntax or something like that. And Robert P. Mueller is just, it's one of those names. Everyone believes in it. And 1946 was sufficiently long ago that you sound like you've really done your research and you're citing seminal work in the field. And it's sort of hard to find because I accidentally forgot to put the journal in there. So it's hard to find. It was an error because no one's perfect, you know? You got a lot of references. But 1946 is a good year. Furthermore, there are no eyewitnesses remaining. <laughs> there are none. I think you can use that where it has all the staying power any article could ever need. I think you're, you're onto something. Okay, well, and Trey, have you got a... I did do. Did you say one already? I, no, I, I, I did not. Hit us with it. This is a bit of a hobby horse of mine, but I think there's a complex of related articles and goes back to John Goldsmith's PhD thesis ah. and the many papers that followed it. Mm. And they have a, a long-lasting influence on the field, I think, because in his PhD thesis on metrical phonology, Goldsmith puts forth this idea of the well-formedness constraint, or WFC, which says very simply that every tone is associated with at least one vowel. And every vowel is associated with at least one tone, and that association lines do not cross. Then comes the infamous excursus on formalism, in which he introduces two pages of variables with superscripts and subscripts and jth element of the ith level and the projections and inverse projections and levels and subsets and connectedness. And the whole WFC thing goes to WTF real quick, and then he just (laughs) abandons it and just forgets that it ever happened and never comes up again. And so the whole point, though, is that this sets up for all the later articles that he writes. He mentions the WFC, (laughs) and he puts his dissertation as a reference. And so at this point, there's no need to explain anything since he's included all the scary math by reference. And he's reified this WFC concept, then deified it via mathematical baptism 
And then he can just deflect criticism by threatening to excurse variables on anybody all over everything if they mess with it. Or excrete variables. <laughs> I think this just reinforces the theme that, that Chomsky had started earlier, which is, and continued for a long time and still continues, is that if you can't dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with BS, which is an important and long-lasting influence on the field of linguistics. And I can tell you that when you were reading that little piece there, I was remembering having read some of that Goldsmith stuff, but I was having that same mounting feeling of panic that I remember having at the time, thinking, really? Is this what I've just decided to go to grad school about? Oh, my. Please, somebody save me. Is there going to be more of this? <laughs> and can I get on that supervillain track really soon? Because I can't take this. If this is how the good guys play, I need to be on the other track. Deploy the Prodout Accelerator. <laughs> I had the kind of the opposite experience. It's like <laughs> I actually understood all that, and I'm like ready to discuss it in class. Oh no, you're that really student. Weren't. I didn't like force it or anything, but it's like, oh, no, we're just gonna like skip over this section. I'm like, but but I read it, and I I understand. I but you were the only one that read it. Nobody else did. It's like this is only like yeah, half as bad as like a math textbook. So. <laughs> I read it, but I thought honestly, it was going to be about language. I can honestly state I did read at it. I sat there and I read at it really hard. <laughs> Made your eyes move across those words. I pushed vision right onto it. <laughs> and could almost have written it all down the same way that people can memorize Latin poetry without knowing Latin. <laughs> it does make for really hot, good parody material i will give yeah. it that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well i'm a little depressed that trey has chosen to bring this back around to phonology which i just do not think is worth mentioning twice in a comprehensive exam but there we've done it so uh i think we better bring it to a close at that point okay i guess that's all the time we have for language made difficult then join us next time when we'll look at the dative case and its use in linguistic matchmaking What's happened in the news since last week? <laughs> oh, stop it. <laughs> it be like two months at least before this one comes out, or probably longer. The mayor of Toronto has done something ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Trey's being sneaky on these. Those were all unusually believable. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me feel a little bit. Really? I thought for sure the nose to hindquarters thing was going to be obviously but that's just weird enough to be believable mm. how does one become a ukulelist oh i could fix you up i totally could fix you up step one is you stick a screwdriver in your ear <laughs> <laughs> and render yourself tone deaf yeah i know how she does it she goes on the french version of google and she says i don't want to find this not <laughs> and then magic happens you're giving away all my secrets here you can't say that is standard twangity bang screwdriver and you don't have to love it <laughs> but it is not screwdriver in your ear ukulele from hawaii computational linguistics sounds oh. like actual work you know i don't i don't know <laughs> well again the computational linguistics rule right whenever a linguist approaches you you speak computationally when a computer scientist approaches you you speak linguistically as long as you don't meet another computational linguist they have no idea what the hell you're talking about <laughs> Well, then you do the Eskimo kiss thing. <laughs> right. It's like, well, I only do stuff in Haskell, dude. <laughs> it's pure. Oh, oh, goodness. I was trying not to crack up. We just have to figure out a way to work in splenemic.
<laughs> You're right, we do. Why didn't we do that? But you're so angry that you write with slashes around it, right? <laughs> then there's the Arcus name. And I was touching my phone with my head, which I suppose I guess you're not supposed to do. I don't I don't know how you don't do that, but that can't be right. Isn't there an uh, inictitude word about that? <laughs> That's if you sit on your phone. <laughs> Well, and then especially if you then touch it to your nose. If you sniff your phone and then sit on it, I don't know. <laughs> that would be the order I would recommend, but I have a feeling <laughs> the other order would be more interesting, not necessarily in a good way. All right, let's get this show on the road. Okay. <laughs> Excursus on formalism. formalism.